Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Thomas Hughes, and this is the Cube LA podcast. Today, you'll be listening to a friend and colleague, Dr. Swati Diva Carla. She is a practicing child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist in the Washington, D.C. area. She was a great person to be around at the time we worked together during Child and Adolescent Fellowship. She's a great example of someone who cares about her work and any person that's lucky enough to work with her. Not only is she a great doctor, but she was also a great guest. She was kind enough to stop by and talk about her life and how her past has influenced her career. So ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and welcome to the stage, Dr. Swati Diva Carla. So, uh, Swati, well, I told your name already. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you? How do I know you? (laughs) Uh, So I guess I should introduce myself. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, My name is Swati. I went to fellowship with you. So uh, one year you're senior in your child psychiatry fellowship. Yes. And uh, what was the other part? How do I... Who, well, am how I? Do I, who are you? Who how am do I? I know I'm a female. You? I'm a human. Oh, I'm a, I like it. <laughs> I start off with that. Um, I don't. I think I've actually been thinking. Okay, so interesting that you asked this. So, like, I recently started a professional Instagram account. Okay. Oh yeah, I did oh, see that. So I saw wait, it. So this is this this has been a really eye-opening experience because I've been like reassessing how I want to present myself to the public over and over again in the midst of the last year. So anytime I've like went into starting the private practice or when I went into the Instagram account, I was like, well, how do I actually introduce myself? What are my values? Who am I? The same questions. This is great practice then. So it is. So, uh, yeah. So beyond above everything else, human, Okay. <laughs> Full of imperfection. I like it. Yeah, yeah, that works. That works. Um, but aside from that, I think the identities I probably take most pride in are like being a family member, my, being a sister, being a daughter, that stuff. Yeah. And then um, being a friend. And then I think mental health wise, I, I would say I'm a psychiatrist. Um, I introduced myself saying that rather than actually saying child psychiatrist a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and then I'm a therapist because I think I say that because I think a lot of people that practice psychiatry actually don't practice therapy in and you know or it's just a lot of misinformation that people believe that we practice only medication management and that we don't practice psychotherapy so um, I've actually had to remind people that that I also am a psychotherapist Um, and a mental health advocate a teacher an educator all of that. All of that stuff at once. So, so. I, um, I saw your Instagram account. Yeah. I think I'm, I, I was one of your, uh, one of the first people that got onto your, you have a professional one and you have the, the outside one. My personal one. one, yeah. All right. I have, I have a professional one and I have a personal one also, but it's just a food page. Um, 
it's a secret food page. There's only like 10 people are on. A secret food page just for you. Well, it's not just for oh. me, but it's <laughs> it's for me. It's just like Go 40 ahead. people are on it. But I'm, I'm not planning on opening it up to the public. I know what you mean by the, you know, what type of um, uh, type of persona you want to put out there. And it's it's strange how to go about that. Yeah. Um, so when did you open up the Instagram page? So I'll be honest, I've been thinking about it since I got out of fellowship. But oh, okay. I actually started it finally. Like, I think it was about maybe two weeks ago. Okay. Um, and so I initially thought of doing it when I started working because I wanted to kind of I thought it would be help with help with marketing it would help with you know just doing having diversity to my work yeah. um, being able to reach people in different ways and at the time in October when I started working I decided against it at that time because I was like look I have a lot of other things on my plate I need to focus my energy on those things first it's a lot of work so yeah and it's a lot of work so every time I would start coming up with a list of the things I need to do to create the account I got overwhelmed by the process and I would stop it and then um, actually because of the sheltered home placements and in the midst of all of the stuff that's come up in the last few weeks so like I think in terms of being in healthcare in the last couple months, it's actually been a very inspiring time um, to be in healthcare. And I felt like, to be honest, like very like, I kind of got reminded that it was also a calling, like, you know, like the stuff that makes your heart strings pull about why we go into medicine, why we do the things we do. And I felt like very grateful to be working um, during this time because I had the ability to do so much more. Um, or at least I thought I did. I probably could have done this last year, but um, but I have a very different ability to treat people and see adults and work with healthcare workers and have a persona out there and treat people affected by this directly and people that are indirectly affected by it. So yeah, last year know, would have been very, tough. Yeah, to, <laughs> last year was tough. more like career planning, and this year it's been more of like okay, now that I've started to career plan and I'm starting to get comfortable with some of the jobs I'm in, I've been able to actually think about what else I want to do. Yeah. And it felt like a very good opportune time to actually start the account as well. So, yeah. So I, I remember uh, when I first met you, I, I don't think we were had the opportunity to interact that much. Right. Mm -hmm. But we saw each other a lot more my the end of my first year because we traded offices. Yep. <laughs> yep because <laughs> i wanted to get out of my office you wanted the window yeah which now i understand I, i've learned that from you and other people people really want a window people really want windows my patients have complained actually i don't have a window <laughs> ironically my private practice office does not have a window what you don't excuse me are you serious Isn't that crazy yeah i went through all of that trouble last year to find a window and i don't you have a window. window currently I, I when I first went into psych, I had no idea when it would be so important. And now I now I get it. Now I understand. OK. <laughs> OK. So you and I did fellowship together. You left you left a year ago. Mm -hmm. and now you're in private practice. Mm -hmm. How is that before so, before the pandemic and now after the pandemic? Like what's so, what's it like out there? <laughs> so I so I finished fellowship and I will say I took like a three month sabbatical of not working first. Okay. So I traveled for three months. I came back and started working October 1st. And I work in two different environments. So one's private practice and one is a community hospital setting where I started their outpatient service line. Right. So um, I do that three days a week and I do this two days a week. So prior to the pandemic, um, I was seeing most of my patients in person. 
Um, I'd actually, even though I was set up for Tela and I offered it as a service, I had very few patients that were actually taking me up on it. Um, everyone was coming in, everyone was um, doing their follow-ups in person. Um, and after the pandemic, that's actually been one of the biggest changes is that I am 100% at home. I've actually been at home for close to eight weeks now because seven weeks ago, I thought I might've had COVID. So I got tested and I went out on quarantine and then that's when I actually started being work at home. So, yeah, so I'm, uh, I've been at home now for seven, almost eight weeks, and it has been quite interesting. This is, I've never, we, like, I mean, oh you God. know this, like, in, med in the medical world, like, we've always worked at the hospital, we've always gone into a clinic, we've never actually worked at home. So this is a oh, completely yeah. new experience for like seven or eight consecutive weeks. They've given me the, they've given me the, the telepsych stuff oh. at home. I got my own setup here. So you can do it from here? Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I do most of my stuff from my computer, but there's, um, I won't say the location, but there's a special one I have to use that computer for. Hmm. So you thought you had COVID seven weeks ago? Do you, do you wax and wane with thinking that you have symptoms? Or? All the time. Okay, I do too. Yeah, I, I mean, I think just like <laughs> everyone else out okay. there. Like, I mean, I cough and I'm like, oh no. But did I, I might I, have, have COVID. COVID. Yeah, I like went out for a run and this is after I tested negative. Um, but like, you know, I, one, I wasn't reassured by the fact that I tested negative, so I stayed home anyway. You were still I anxious. quarantined anyway. Yeah. Um, I refused to go see anybody, even at a distance. Mm -hmm. um, and then I like went out for a run and like mm -hmm. I probably just like worked, ran too hard because I was out of shape, but mm -hmm. I like all of a sudden felt like I was wheezing and I thought like, oh, do I have pneumonia? I have COVID. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's just um, from the stories that you hear from the residents, about people being on vents and then knowing the symptoms yourself. I mean, I remember this in medical school, like we would have, we would, we would hear about a diagnosis and then any sort of feeling that we had was a symptom. And we would mm -hmm. think that we had that diagnosis. Um, and it feels the same way the past eight weeks. Yep. It's very strange. We know too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so now yeah. you're 100% teller. So I'm 100% tele, and I will say, so prior to the pandemic, I'd say, or prior to the sheltered home placements, because that's kind of the distinction I draw, like the pandemic started way before that. But prior to the sheltered home placements, I was still picking up new patients um, and taking new clients. And I think during the period after the sheltered home placement was put in, um, I basically just held steady with the clients that I already have or patients that I already have haven't really taken on too many new patients. I didn't have anyone new for the whole month of April. Um, and I learned a lot about the economy and small business world <laughs> and finances and how to stay afloat and what loans to apply for and You'll have how to, teach to me. and I will, you know, and I held steady and May now things are picking up again. So, Oh really? Yep. People so, are, people are coming back out. Yeah. I think it's, it's been really interesting though to see, like, I guess, like, so have you ever gone on Google Trends? Trends? Yeah. With, no. Like, okay, so on Google Trends, if you can actually basically search something and see how often that thing has been searched in the last oh. week, in the last month, in the last three months. Yeah. And so even on my Google business account or on Google Trends, I would go on there and search psychiatrists near me. And I'd basically see that the searches basically plummeted as soon as the shelter at home went into place. Oh, so okay. the, they plummeted. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm not taking this personally. Like people just aren't Googling okay, this. Okay. People just aren't looking, <laughs> right? right? And, then, and then I actually like maybe a week or two ago went back and searched this again. Mm -hmm. And like it actually started to come back up. 
So oh. I, I will say, I think for anyone that was already in treatment, they were all kind of really like insightful enough to understand like it was important to stay in treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's been a really great thing. Mm-hmm. But I think it, I think for a lot of people, it took a couple of weeks to kind of understand how this was affecting them and to come to terms with or understand like, oh, they're feeling more anxious or they're feeling more depressed or their kids are really struggling now. And it's been two weeks or three weeks. And, you know, now they're like, okay, we need to get our kid back in. Mm-hmm. We need to get back to like the sense of routine and like what we ha- were supposed to be doing, we need to go back to doing. Right. So that was a period of about two to three weeks. Again, mid-March, I think everyone was kind of happy to not have to go to school anymore. And I got to admit, you know, I was fine with not going to work. It was okay. And now (laughs) kids are, you know, parents and kids are just not getting along. Kids want to go outside, especially the teenagers. They're just leaving the house and coming back whenever they want to. Mm -hmm. Um, It's tough. So for you, uh, before, again, we have to go before and then after the. Yeah. (laughs) Your plan was to do what? Were you only going to do kids or were you going to see adults or a certain age range of adults? What what was your plan? So I started my practice with the intention of seeing more kids than adults. Okay. Um, I I still love adult psychiatry, so I knew I wanted to see a a lot of adults. And I think by nature of picking the location I did in D.C. that I kind of knew I was going to get more adults in that location. Okay. Um, and I, I did my private practice filled with mostly adults initially. Mm. Um, and it was actually like a, it was a breath of fresh air. Like adults. after, do, yeah, yeah. I mean, after doing like two years of all kids and adolescents and fellowship, it was, I mean, aside from moonlighting on the weekends, like, which is the only time I saw adults, you know, I got back to doing psychotherapy and outpatient adult work. So that's been fantastic. Um, it's new. Yeah. Different. And then. But my three days a week when I'm over at the community hospital, I'm seeing all my kids and adolescents in that city. Oh, okay. So you're getting so the I was seeing anyway. I was seeing the mix anyway, but I was just wasn't seeing them all in private practice. Yeah. And now my private practice has actually moved closer to the 50-50 kind of proportion yeah. um, of like adults versus kids. So I was curious to know if, regardless of what age range you work with, your treatment philosophy, it's going to be different from every psychiatrist. You mentioned it earlier. It's going to be different. Our program was heavy therapy, mm-hmm. trauma, trauma in particular, but heavy therapy. Yeah. Not every program does that. Yeah. A lot of programs, whether it be kids or adults, just meds, 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 and then maybe they'll do some therapy. Yeah. So how does, is that working out, being able to do therapy yeah, <laughs> in so, private practice? I'm curious. Yeah, so I, and I, so that's, you know, you're asking about like kind of what I thought I was going to do versus what I am doing. Absolutely. Um, I thought... Well, okay, so let me rewind. When I was in residency, I also was in a program that was very therapy-oriented. Okay. Um, so I learned a lot of, like, the psychoanalysis-influenced psychodynamic psychotherapy. I learned a lot of CBT. Um, and as you know, our fellowship was also very CBT-oriented and trauma-focused. So I was very well acquainted to it, but I really didn't think I would be practicing psychotherapy uh, uh, primarily. Yeah. Um, and when I started working, when I started the private practice, I thought I would be doing mostly med management and maybe here and there I'd pick a case for psychotherapy, but I didn't think I would be doing both. So that, that in and of itself was anxiety provoking, setting a rate and like understanding like what was out there, what was everyone else charging mm-hmm. and deciding how I wanted to set up. Like I thought I would be doing an hour intake for an adult and I thought I'd be doing 
two hours for a child. And right. I have stuck to the two hours for the child, but I actually do a 75 minute to 90 minute adult intake. Okay. So that changed. Um, my pricing, I went back and forth on and I finally came to terms with like, what is the quality of care I'm providing in 75 minutes and what is that worth to me? And you know, I, I did a lot of research and then I finally set my rates. And then I started seeing people and I found that in the midst of also learning and actually networking into the mental health community in DC, I didn't know, like I knew a bunch of psychologists, I knew some therapists, but not that well, right? So I, and as you know, mental health professionals that provide care can vary in the type of care they provide, right? Um, you know, yeah, for, and, yes. and I mean, and that's to say that I just didn't know them well enough to know, like, if a patient came in to see me and I knew, like, hey, they would do really well with CBT, I actually didn't know who was the best CBT person to refer them to. Uh, yeah. And in the meantime, I also knew that I had all the skills mm -hmm. and I had the room in my schedule. So I was like, well, I'll see him. I like that. I'll do it. So it's, like, it's working out then. Yeah. So, I mean, while Good. I was networking, I was like, I know there's going to be a time when I was like, I'm not going to be able to fill my, my schedule with all psychotherapy cases. But for that beginning period, I was like, you know what? If someone comes to me and already has a therapist, I will work with that therapist. But if someone comes to me and they don't have either, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll offer to do both. Yeah. And I am so much happier and I find so much gratification out of actually doing both. Mm -hmm. um, I do a lot more psychotherapy than I thought I would be doing. And I am so grateful to have gone to both a residency and a fellowship that were very therapy oriented. Shout out to University yeah. of Maryland and what was your? At Drexel. Okay. Oh, you know what? I tell you what, this might be a good time to, okay, so let's take a few steps back. <laughs> this is, I was a very chaotic interviewer. So you went uh, to Drexel. Drexel mm -hmm. is where for people that don't know. Where's Drexel located? It's in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Are you from Philadelphia or did you come from? Nope, I'm from Maryland. Okay, so, so let's let's go through your whole... My your life story. Sure, your life story. <laughs> what city were you born in? I was born in India. Um, oh, okay, okay. I immigrated to the U.S. with my parents when I was two, so I might as well have been born and raised here. Um, but so we lived in Wisconsin for eight years, then moved to Maryland, and I grew up in Maryland in the suburbs, so... Wisconsin? Mm-hmm. Yep. I wasn't going to guess that. Yeah, okay, that, so, I, most people wouldn't just <laughs> randomly guess that. I, okay, I, this is probably the my child psychiatrist. My dad was doing his PhD at the time oh, okay. at, at University of Wisconsin, and so we lived in Madison because he was doing his PhD. How was that? Uh, living there? I, I don't think I've ever been. I've lived in Richmond, Miami, Los Angeles, and Baltimore. I've never lived. I don't even think I've visited any city in the middle of the country other than Chicago. Mm -hmm. and I was there for two days. What was it like being Midwest? I know you were like eight years old, but. Yeah, I mean, you know, age two to nine, you know, it's a little different it's when okay. you're early. It's fine. I still want to hear about it. But <laughs> so it's twofold. So one, I think some of that answer is we were immigrating to this country and I was a huge culture shock. Right. Yeah. So one, I think my dad was, you know, going back to do his Ph.D. at the age of 40. So he was super busy. We were financially strapped. He was working really hard. My mom uh, had a language barrier when we immigrated, so it was very difficult to actually assimilate and acculturate into the U.S. Um, so that was probably part of the experience of like initially living in Wisconsin. Um, but we were surrounded by other people that were also immigrants and other families like ourselves, and so it was fine. But the school I went to was predominantly Caucasian. Um, 
and so I, to be honest, I the biggest culture shock was moving out of Wisconsin to PG County. Uh, wh- so, why? Yeah. Why? So we, when we moved to Maryland for my dad's job at um, NOAA, we moved to Greenbelt, Maryland, um, and it was a gigantic culture shock. What, what was the What was the biggest difference that you can think of? Um, was well, it just demographics. School, so the school, yeah, it was demographics, demographics. mainly. So I mean, yeah. I went from living in a place where it was maybe a few other minority populations and predominantly Caucasian to all of a sudden predominantly African-American and Hispanic. And, um, and it was just very different, yeah. you know? And I think I, and I'd also switched schools multiple times because we moved a couple of times in when we moved to Maryland. So between elementary and middle, then between middle schools, I switched once and then switching again from middle to high school. So it was a very Ooh. traumatic the middle school uh, years. Yeah. It was a very <laughs> traumatic few years. Oh wow. Yeah, switching schools in middle school is it's not ideal. Yeah. No, I don't I, mean, I tell a lot of the patients that you know, we, we tell a lot of the kids that we treat this, but I don't think anyone has ever looked back and told themselves, oh, middle school was my most favorite time of life. <laughs> what was your worst like your worst school year? Do you know? Seventh. Mine was sixth. I, t- yeah. I tell my kids that Mine all the time. Mine was seventh. It's the Absolutely. Worst. It's the worst. Um, <laughs> Such yeah. a hard time. Okay. So, so yeah, I, I had trouble making friends. I had trouble like acculturating. I had trouble understanding like the differences between Wisconsin and here and, you know, why we were moving and, you know, all of it. Um, so I found myself, you know, switching schools, trying to figure out what to do. And then we moved to Burtonsville, Maryland, which is just over the border of PG and Montgomery County. Okay. And so I was, I was there through the end of high school. Okay. So essentially th- three or four big moves. Yeah. Other than that, it's just, just middle schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, how, do you think those experiences have had any influence over your future decisions? Absolutely. All of the influence. And All of it. Okay. All of it. <laughs> like, I, I, like, <laughs> you know what I was going to ask? Like, almost, like, what, which almost all of it. I, I think the process of immigrating to this country and being a, I guess, like 1.5 generation immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just like not understanding social stuff, right? Like, I mean, when there was a language barrier in my family and I didn't necessarily, my mom was learning about the U.S. when I was learning about the U.S. So oh, yeah. you mentioned that your mom, <clears throat> did your dad speak English? Yeah, my dad speaks English very well. And my mom now does. Oh, Perfectly. I mean back then. Yeah, back then. So, but, but it was still difficult because my mom was a stay-at-home, so she mm. wasn't actually out working. Yep. She was taking care of us. Yep. So even though she learned English, she wasn't really seeing the world out there. Like she didn't experience working and she didn't experience being out there. And our bubble was kind of small. Yeah. Um, so we had like our family friends. We had our family and relatives. And that was kind of, that was it. Mm. Like, and so given what they knew and given how busy they were, like they were doing the best they knew to do. Right. You know, and so we and I was the oldest sibling. So uh, my younger sister probably benefited from me. But I kind of had to figure things out on my own a lot. Um, so oh, there was a lot of it was, oh. a, it was it was difficult. So you just mentioned siblings. Do you know what my next questions are going to be? So you're uh, oldest out of how many? Just two. Just two. OK. Yeah. <laughs> I was hoping for a middle child. I was just no, hoping. No. Okay. <laughs> I, I think yeah. I'm falling into that trap of, uh, you know, when you go to a um, a party or something and you meet people for the first time and you tell them you're a psychiatrist, yeah. what's the number one thing that they say to you? 
I know what they say. Well, after they gasp and they're like, oh, oh. Yeah. Like they do that first. Are you going to psychoanalyze me? Yeah, exactly. Okay. I feel like I'm actually doing that. Usually it's, yes, I've already done that. And now I'll definitely do that. Yeah, yeah. You just gave (laughs) me all the information I need to know. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. But but back to your question. So you, yeah. So I think all of that definitely influenced my decision, partially because I was learning all of this by myself. And so I think... I tended to observe a lot of human behavior and understanding people. And so I was always interested in like why people acted a certain way or why people acted a different way and what was different in this school versus that school. And, you know, so I think the basis of that was there. And then, you know, in high school, like any adolescent, I, you know, it's difficult for my parents because I was all of a sudden wanting to be independent and individuated. So they culturally that, you know, we, we clashed. You were Americanized. Uh, well, I'd say more so marginalized. Marginalized, uh, okay. Because I didn't necessarily feel like I fit in in a crowd of, like, Americans. And then I also didn't necessarily feel like I fit in in a group of Indians from India. Oh, so you were marginalized so from very, both very sides. very, very marginalized. Both sides. Mm-hmm. So from, from Indian culture and then also mm-hmm. American culture. So I kind of, like, felt like a misfit. Hmm. A little bit, you know? And so I think that... I mean, it was, uh, you know, I found myself like I, after high school, I went to college. I found, you know, a lot of other South Asians that I identified with um, and that were very similar in terms of upbringing with me. Um, I found myself like identifying with them and hanging out with them a lot and having a great time in college because all of a sudden I wasn't sheltered. Um, So, you know, I spent a lot of time socializing and learning things and experimenting and making new friends every year, every couple of years, figuring, making a lot of mistakes, uh, screwing up a couple classes and, you know, not really knowing exactly what I wanted to do and changed my mind about my major a couple of times, even though in the beginning I was like, Oh, I really like medicine. I really like biology, but I honestly didn't have the confidence to think that I was going to go to med school. Um, and, you know, so I, I kind of like played around with a bunch of I- other ideas. I thought about going to nursing school. I thought about going to chiropractor school. I thought about going into psychology. I actually, um, coming out of college, I, so I, in college, I worked for an organization called Trellis Services where I did in-home instruction for kids with autism. Um, and I worked with them for about two and a half years. And then I TA'd an anatomy and physio class. And those two experiences together kind of led me to like, be like, no, I think medicine is it. But in the meantime, I actually also applied for jobs and I got a job at Kennedy Krieger here really? in Baltimore. And then I got into med school the two days after I got that job. And so I was like, well, going to med school. <laughs> so how excited were your parents? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I not that excited. Really? I, yeah, it, it's really? interesting. So they were like, you want to do what? well I also took a much more non-traditional route I went to the Caribbean for med school and so because I took a a little bit of a longer time to come around and deciding I wanted to do medicine by the time that I was applying I had the choice of either going an alternative route going to the Caribbean or doing a post-bac program and a master's and then taking the chance of maybe getting into a U.S. med school still not knowing if I would get in Mm -hmm. so I took the chance and took the Caribbean med school route. And so I think it was very like unknown and very uncertain. Oh, so and so my parents were, were just like, I don't understand what you're doing. Um, are you sure? Uh, you're going where again? And I thought, you know, and I went to Antigua. So I went there and my parents were like, what? So you like 
You want to go all the way to Antigua for school? I, I asked that question. I've learned everything I know about Indian culture from friends. They all t- engineer, <laughs> doctor. Am I missing one? Uh, IT. IT. Mm-hmm. Got to do it. Or or, or lawyers. I mean, or I lawyer. Think, yeah, mm-hmm. That's what it was. Yeah. You know, I, th- I mean, it's, it's stereotyped and I think, but it's still true. I think it's also what they know, right? Like, like my dad's a PhD in atmospheric science. He knows IT. He knows physics. He knows engineering. Right. He tried to push me towards all the programming languages. I could not do the ifs, this, then that. Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. I could, Visual yeah. Basic ruined it for me. Um, I tried little bits and pieces or dabbled into some of those classes and just like I couldn't get with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I eventually figured out just by process of elimination almost that I really had to go to medicine because that's really way. where my heart was. Yeah. And you went, you went that way naturally, it mm-hmm. sounds like. Sounds like you weren't pushed so much to do it. Yeah, I actually yeah. was not pushed at all. If anything, my parents pushed me against going into medicine. Oh, really? I, uh, yeah. Did they give you reasons as to why? Just, I, to be honest, I probably didn't instill the confidence in them that I was going to get through it. Oh, uh, okay. Prior to that, I think I struggled. You know, like I was saying, like I messed up in a couple classes. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was worried about the financial commitment it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, in the midst of kind of being an adolescent and pushing back on them about things I wanted to do. Like I probably, you know, I could have focused a little bit more on school in uh, some of the classes and they probably just were like, are you sure? Or is not, this just the next thing that you want to yeah, do? She's like, not, she's not you know? committed. She's not. Yeah. I, I honestly, I don't think I instilled the confidence in them that they needed to back me up on mm-hmm. it. And like, I can't fault them for that. Yeah. I mean, we were um, a teenager. I, I was also a teenager. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing right. half the time. Right. By the time I figured out what I wanted to do, I just, I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're a teenager, you're not going to know what you... I don't think I figured out I wanted to go into medical school until my sophomore year after someone uh, encouraged me to look... I think I went to a summer school program for uh, for future medical students, and the only reason I went is because they paid me. I didn't just do it because I wanted to. I just... Yeah, I mean, you have to figure things out. Yeah. So that's good. You had a ton of experiences before you yeah. landed in Antigua. Mm-hmm. Antigua. 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 How was that? Um, it was, it was a tough, uh, four years. So Go on. the Caribbean med school system. Hey everybody! Thanks for tuning in. At this point in the conversation, we're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Cube LA podcast.